Good morning again. If you would take your Bibles and open to the book of Romans, the letter of Paul to the Romans. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses this morning from Paul's letter to the Romans. I'm going to be reading <clears throat> reading the entirety of those seven verses as we uh, introduce this. We also are beginning uh, first week of Advent, so we certainly have that in mind as well. And um, as always, God's Word is sufficient to meet every need in every season. And we especially find um, much capital, be uh, spiritual capital in these words, especially at the beginning of our Advent uh, time. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who were loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Amen. <clears throat> Again, you have to excuse me as my voice is, <clears throat> well, it can't have its blessing. It sounds deeper than normal, so. That can be good. Um, but there are important things here in our text. Obviously, this is the most esteemed letter that people would uh, look at in the entire Bible. And so we, we come to this letter already with a, a sense in which the gravity of the glory of God is present before us in these words. It was written, likely, from Corinth. And we go back to chapter 20 of Acts and you can see some of the events that were going on in Corinth. And you can see that if it was written at that time, Paul was in the midst of all kinds of struggles and, and pressures. And so that just gives even a greater glory to the fact this was written, not merely by man, but by the Holy Spirit in such a man. Paul was the disciple pro-excellence. He was an example to the Gentiles as to how we, all believers, might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and what God does in the life of a, a sinner and how He saves the sinner and makes him usable for the service of the King. And so, <clears throat> as we go to the text, uh, there's a temptation to go through the whole book and just give overview, but I just want us to jump right in and see really what this first seven verses is about. And I believe it's about Paul's gospel. You'll note that Paul speaks of his gospel in that terms. He says, my gospel. He, he speaks of it in a way that he takes ownership of it. And the question really is, is what is his gospel? What has become so important to him that he has himself spoken of it in such personal terms to say it's my gospel. 
And we might be taken by that to think, well, that seems awful. Maybe a prideful way to say God's gospel because it's really God's gospel. Why would he say it's his gospel? And I think we have to understand that Paul's gospel is God's gospel. There's no other gospel. And any other gospel that would come along and and betray the tenets of the Christian religion would be no gospel at all. In fact, it would be that which he would say is uh, anathema and that is to be uh, condemned and is to be something in which condemns others for preaching another gospel. In Galatians, he comes very strongly with that. But in the Roman letter here, he's not coming across very rough about his words. He's coming across very kind. And he is answering questions about the rumors that are gone about his gospel. He's answering pastoral concerns. Some of those include that his teaching is strange and dangerous. And so in the background, the Romans have this implicit uh, idea that perhaps Paul's teaching is strange and dangerous. So that would be important why he would own it and he would speak of it as his gospel. So they would know exactly what he is preaching, what he does believe, and what he sets forth as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, they believe he's forgotten the basics of the gospel. That shows up in some areas, and he's going to set forth throughout the letter what are the basics of the gospel. Another thing is they have an idea. They think that he might be against the Jews. He that he has forgotten the advantage of the Jews. That would be a a concern that he's going to address in a big way in the letter to the Romans. And he also is accused of antinomianism and implicit in the background that he's neglected the value and the power of the law. And he's going to deal with that throughout the chapters to come. But in these seven verses is a nucleus of all those things. We see, first of all, Paul of Paul's gospel. Um, Notice that it's not just, here's the gospel and you need to have no concern with me. But rather, he does set forth who he is. Though he doesn't do it long, he does do it. And you begin with that word, Paul. He is giving his new signature, if you would. It's, of course, false to say, that Saul was changed to Paul by God. It wasn't. But Paul indicates something very, very important. And that that is his audience. Paul is now commissioned to the Gentiles, to the Romans, and that will be the name which they would know him by. He would be called Paul. And just writing that humble name, if you would, which some say speaks of the smallness of a man, here he doesn't, shy away from setting forth his name to begin with, Paul. And he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. This word is the word doulos. And there's much ink spilled over the translation issues of the word doulos. I tend to think that servant is the best way to translate it, just as the ESV has it, because we see the background of this word. is found in the servants throughout Uh, The prophets, Moses, is a servant of the Lord. Elijah is called a servant of the Lord. All the prophets before are called servants of the Lord. They're not so much called slaves, 
though we do get the background of it. So we get into an issue of translation philosophy here. The way I would encourage translators to work through this or for you to see the translation is that we see probably most convincingly in the book of Isaiah, the servant songs. And you see throughout that that there is this servant to come whom we know as Christ. And we see he makes servants. He doesn't speak of it in a way of slavery. However, when we study the text, we should not discount the fact to explain what does it mean when he says the word servant. Well, it's an honorific title, so the word slave really is not the best translation of it. But it is also a background that we need to discover. That background deals with the fact of the word doulos does speak of a willing man, slave, who loves his master and willingly is, is able to stay with his master and is, undergoes an, a transaction to do so having his ear pierced on an awl, and he remains that man's uh, possession as a servant, loving his family, loving his master, loving his work. And Paul, in a sense, is saying that he is completely resolved over to God. But this is not unique to Paul. The word that he's using here is not just for Paul, just for the prophets, just for the apostles. This particular idea of the servanthood of God The servanthood unto God is a matter of every Christian. Every Christian falls in the category of being a servant of Christ Jesus. That's what he does. He makes you go from serving yourselves to serving the Lord. It's an honorific title. We may want to go around and call ourselves slaves so we look important. But that lacks the punch of what he's saying. He's saying, I'm a servant. I'm a humble servant. And all Christians are humble servants before Almighty God. And the servant who came and served us, he didn't come to, give, to, to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He produces servants, plural. And that's the way the book of Isaiah goes. You have the servant songs and, and the servant that's the focus, Christ. And then you have this change to the plural. And that is the focus on the people of God. God has always wanted to be with his people. And that's what makes the, the season of Advent so striking and the Christmas story so beautiful is that God has actually come to be with his people. Emmanuel he has come to dwell with his people. He has taken away the physical temple in Jerusalem. And he has equated that temple with his own body who was crucified and was raised on the third day. And he is now building a new temple by his own, beginning with his own incarnation. And he is building that temple throughout the world called the church, made up of Jew and Gentile. It's not a replacement of the Jews, we'll see. It's a replacement of the temple of the Jews. And the new temple is spreading throughout the earth and it's made up of all people, all the elect, all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So that is what every believer is, a servant. And we see their servant of Christ Jesus. Now, what's unique here is Paul is called to be an apostle. And you know, an apostle is somebody who especially called and sent forth 
from someone, in particular, an apostle of Jesus Christ, has to have certain signs, miracles, the actual um, appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ raised. And therefore, there are no apostles today because they've all died. They have not witnessed the risen Christ. They have not been given special powers and abilities or abilities to do miracles. They form the foundation of the church, but they are not part of the ongoing measure of the church. The ongoing measure of the church is said to be in Ephesians 4, that he has appointed or given apostles and prophets. They're the foundation. And then he gives uh, evangelists, prophets, I mean pastors and teachers. And so in our day, the gift of the church is pastoral ministry and teaching ministry. There are no miracles expected from that, though some people do look to the church to do miracles and they look to the pastors to do miracles. But they are but men without the ability to do miracles. They are but men called to explain the word of God. Teachers in the church, which may be included with the pastors, uh, may be separate from it, depending on uh, which take. Uh, I tend to think with Calvin, you have a um, those in the church that are especially gifted for teaching and have a role to assist in the teaching fellowship of the pastoral ministry. And as those men are called and gifted, they add a great uh, measure of building up of the body so they're not tossed to and about by every wind of doctrine. So whichever way you take that, <clears throat> we're distinguishing the fact that an apostle like Paul is forming the foundation of the church. Just like we saw in Acts where the church was founded, you're not needing to continue on that ministry. Paul's ministry is significant, though. We would not have a lot of our New Testament if he did not write these things. Most of the New Testament is written by Paul, at least in the human sense. We have 13 letters. We can add uh, Hebrews if you go with what John Owen says about it. I'm convinced likely it is Paul. And... um, we see the apostle is called and set apart. And this word set apart um, speaks of, in the Latin, segre, segregatum, which is going to be uh, like we get the word segregate. And what's interesting about this word, um, segregatum, is it, it shows up in Luke in 6.22. And um, I'll just read that to you, because I think it gives a... Um, the negative side of the picture of what Paul is saying. I think I have that reference right. Let's see. Luke. It says here, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you. And spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The words exclude you is the word segregatum in the Latin. And it's the negative side of this idea of being set apart. It means you've been cast out by somebody. You've been excluded. Jesus says, blessed are the excluded. Blessed are those who have been excluded from something here for the sake of my name. And so that's the negative, but there's a positive. Um, The intent, I think, is very clear. He uses the word in the Greek, 
Aferezzo. Aferezzo, you might hear the, the sound of it. Pharisee. Pharisee. That's what formed the word for a Pharisee. Pharisees saw themselves as set apart. Uh, a people that are set apart particularly for the law of God. And so they were, <clears throat> in every sense, the, the, um, the legalists of the day. And he's saying here something very unique, isn't he? He's saying he's set apart for the gospel of God. Ah, for itzo. Oftentimes you put an A in front of something, you're making it the negative of it. And so he's saying, I'm not a Pharisee to the law. I am now set apart for the gospel. What a, a punch to come out with when he has something to say about himself to begin with. He's saying, really, I've been changed by the gospel of God. So I am now set apart for something new and something gracious. Well, <clears throat> that's all he says about himself. And there's a point made in that very thing. He is so consumed with the gospel, he's not consumed with talking about himself. He wants to get talking about the gospel. And I would ask by point of application, if you're always talking about yourself, how much time do you really have to talk about the gospel? If the focus is always yourself, if the language coming out of your mouth is always focused on you, if the center of life and the center of the universe is, is you as an individual, you have no time to talk about the gospel, let alone listen to the gospel, let alone receive the blessings of the gospel, if you've fallen into that trap of this, this net of talking and focusing all about you. There's a false humility that can be produced among Christians, certainly, by imitating an idea of being concerned about others, but everybody knows you're not concerned about others either. The gospel is what only brings a genuineness to the walk with God that we claim to have. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to actually make you genuinely, sincerely concerned about the things of God and the people of God. And people can smell it when it's fake and they can see it when it's real. Even the world can. And therefore, I think there's a lesson in this. You see a genuineness when somebody, again, isn't taking themselves out of the picture, but has appropriate proportion to put themselves in the picture and understand that this is his gospel. But at the same time, he magnifies everything of the gospel over himself. He's included in the gospel, just as all servants of God are, because the gospel, the good news, is a good news to the people in whom he redeems. And it might sound just absolutely beyond this world, but that's the fact that he actually takes people and puts them within um, the objects of his love, and, and they include it in this good news. It's, it's tremendous. A tremendous privilege. So, I think we have to begin there. Paul doesn't exclude himself from it, but he's not focused on talking all about himself. He's focused now on the gospel of God. And a few things he wants you to know about this gospel. One, its origin, it's of God. It's God's gospel. When you hear of it, it's not hearing about it. As we learned the other week, when the word is preached, 
you hear him. When the gospel is preached, you hear the gospel. Our aim is not to talk about the gospel so much as to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the origin of this gospel is from God. It is of God. It is hearing the good news of God. And it is, in Paul's mind, if he wants to say anything that's so important about this gospel and from this gospel is the issue of it's Trinitarian. Notice we see the gospel of God. We see concerning his son, verse 3. We see then dropping down. We see according to the spirit of holiness. In other words, Paul wants the readers to know the gospel begins with the father. And it says that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And that's vital as you see that he has promised these things before they had come to pass. And he had promised them through his prophets. And he gives the credibility of them in the Holy Scriptures. So that Paul, again, if you, if you hear the implicit problems in the background, they're saying his teaching is dangerous. They're saying that his teaching would be outside of Scripture. It would be strange, far into Scripture. He's saying he's arguing everything from Scripture. And much of that at the time would be the Scriptures of the Old Testament. The prophets, the writings, the Psalms, they would be his source. And he's going to quote tremendously from the Scriptures so that you see that the Gospel that is his Gospel is the Gospel predicted by the prophets. So that's the first thing, that the Father has promised this Gospel and has been promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Second, he wants them to know it's concerning his Son. Now, when we say concerning his Son, we, <clears throat> we look at particularly the Son in whom God installed on Zion back in Psalm 2. We see the Anointed One, the Son of God who was descended from David. He's the Davidic King. He's the one that was promised to come through the line of David. This Son has come. In the birth of Christ, this Son has appeared. This one who reveals God has now come. He is descended from David. And we see that if we look at uh, the line there of Mary. And we look at uh, uh, Matthew speaking specifically to the Jewish audience. You would see an emphasis on that this son has been descended from David. And it says according to the flesh. So we see this son is not... Not um, <clears throat> just God, uh, God's Son, but he is, he is God's Son in the sense He's fully God, but yet He's also fully man. But the idea of this flesh is put opposite where we see later of uh, the spiritual. He entered into, uh, scholars say He entered into our fallen humanity. It's the same word He uses later for that when He's talking about the struggle with the flesh. So if you're a believer, what happens is 
at the moment of belief, at the moment of regeneration, the moment of faith, a struggle commences. And the struggle is called a struggle with the flesh. And so some would translate it out as sinful flesh. You say, well, how could God take on the fallen flesh of humanity? How could he do that? And he did that in the incarnation. That's what's so magnificent about it is he took on this, the flesh, the fallenness of humanity. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the heart of what Paul's getting at in the good news is he's telling them that this one, according to the flesh, he has taken on our flesh. He has taken on our fallen nature, the fallenness of man. He became that. He became one who entered into our very nature. Yet he did not sin. He was without sin while taking on our sin, taking on our flesh. And he's declared to be the Son of God. Another translation issue. Some want to focus heavily on this idea of, um, well, let's put it this way. A lot of people working through this think translation is nothing more than having a lexicon, looking up a word and putting it down. That's not what translation is. There's something more to the context. There's something more to the flow. There's something more to the reason why you're going to use a certain word. And so, yes, if you just go to a rigid definition, it would be marking out, designating those type of things. That's not what he's saying. The point here is, think Psalm 2. Psalm 2 saying, He is declared the Son of God. He has been set forth as the one who's going to judge the world. When did that happen? What says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The moment Christ was raised, He ascends. He goes to sit at the right hand of the Father. He rules the universe in authority. He always has ruled. But now in a particular way, He is the one who is going to come the second time to judge the world, the living and the dead. That's what we say in the Apostles' Creed, that He was crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, the lowest point of His humiliation, and He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, and He ascended to the Father's right hand from which he will, for, from whence He will come to judge the living and the dead. That's the idea. And so what Psalm says is that the nations rage. The peoples plot vain things. God is, sit, is in heaven and He laughs. And then He speaks of He has installed, He has set His King on Zion. And what is happening here in the Gospel is says He's declaring this is the One. He's declaring Jesus is the Son of God. He has been installed on Zion. He has been given all authority. He is the One who now will be the judge of the world. He came the first time to save humanity. He will come the second time to judge the living and the dead. A lot of people, they would call themselves agnostics. I get this from Sproul who's speaking about the dangers of agnosticism. Agnosticism says we can't be sure. So you'll find agnostics that will come to church and be faithful at church for a just-in-case kind of net, safety net. Atheists would say, I don't believe in God. I'm not coming to church. He doesn't exist. They suppress the truth in that way. 
but the agnostic says he might be true. So just in case, I'm going to go through some of the things of religion and like the things that I want of religion. And so the agnostic, though, is in greater danger because he's saying he doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus that has been proven that Jesus is indeed real, that he is a son of God, he has been installed on Zion, he rules the universe, there'll be a day that those agnostics will have to stand before God and they've been given enough evidence. And they're going to stand there being condemned. You're in a very dangerous position if you're playing around with just a, a, a hope for in the human sense. A, a might be. Well, it, it could be true. And therefore, I'm going to um, go through the habits of religion. But they don't really believe it. And they really want more proof to actually begin to serve the Lord. How much proof does it take? He came. He was born. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. And after he died, death couldn't defeat him. And he rose the third day according to the Scriptures and ascended to glory. How much more proof do you need? There's no amount of proof beyond that that's going to convince anybody to become a believer. And therefore, be careful that you're playing around with this idea that you need more proof to actually obey the Lord. You're in a very dangerous position if you're sitting there and, and questioning, I need more proof to actually do something for God. To serve the Lord. To do what I'm supposed to do. You're in a very dangerous position. Because His resurrection has done everything that's needful and necessary to prove to you you ought to be serving God. And when we say service to God, we're saying the one who has now been a servant of themselves now becomes a servant of the Lord. And that's largely what the church is made up of. It's made up of servants of God. People that stop caring exclusively about themselves and began to actually care about what God thinks, what God says, what God commands. So we see the Father, we see the Son involved, and then we began to brush across the Spirit here. We began to look at the Spirit of God. Which, by the way, there's no sufficient illustration acceptable of the gospel than the Trinity. The Trinity illustrates the gospel. Nothing else can illustrate the gospel but the fact that we have one who is one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If anything, if anything should come out when we're reading Paul's words as he's demonstrating to us if the gospel is so important and getting the gospel right is so important, these are the things he wants to make sure you know the gospel actually is. So he's spoken about the Father. He's spoken about the Son according to the flesh. That's what we celebrate in the Advent season leading up to Christmas and the Christmas story. Is that very fact? And it says, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> Throughout the book of Romans, there are many, many, many chiasms, meaning that the point of each narrative section often is found in the center. It's written largely like Psalms are. That's why we're, we're also going to be looking at Psalms on the Sunday evenings, upcoming New Year's Eve going forward. 
The center often is the point. Well, in this particular seven verses, we begin with a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. We end with the Lord Jesus Christ. The center is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the center of it. And you may be able to pair with it the resurrection from the dead. But the point about what Paul's getting at is he's speaking about a risen Lord who rules. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And again, we're getting into some of the technical matters. The word Lord there obviously does refer to the back to the idea of the name given above all names. Philippians chapter 2. We think we know how to pronounce it as Yahweh or Jehovah, but we actually don't have a definitive way of pronouncing it. It was called the unutterable name of God. And the tradition was when those scribes wrote out the name, the tradition is said that they would disregard that writing utensil because of the holiness of God's name. And you would say, well, that's very mystical and all that, but it stuck. And even when they read it in public worship, they would not read it out as Yahweh or Jehovah. It doesn't mean it forbids it. It's just the fact they didn't do that. They read out as Adonai. And when they read out Adonai, meaning master, Lord, it set forth the category when we read in our New Testaments of what Jesus is called is because they were identifying and equivocating the idea of Lord, Master, with the divine name of the covenant of the Old Testament revealed in Exodus 3 especially. And so you have here that Jesus is being declared as God. And he's given the name, in a sense, the name which gives him authority and judgment over all the earth. So it's good to retain Lord because you're going to end up, here's what you're going to end up doing. If you don't retain the tradition there, you're going to end up losing what happens between the Old and New Testament. You're going to end up losing that the the name L-O-R-D, Lord, is now going to become obsolete. It's the very thing that says, if you confess with your mouth that, and believe in your heart, right? That confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, Jesus was raised from the dead. God the Father raised Him. And that you will be saved if you confess Him as Lord, right? If you take that away, if you take that away and just begin to say, well, it's Yahweh, it's Jehovah, and all those things, you remove the tradition. The correspondence of Lord is lost. So when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, it matters. And it matters because we understand what Lord means. But that doesn't mean we have to translate it out as being so rigid. We want to hear what did God intend. And He used the traditions of the Jews so that when He comes on the scene, everybody would know when they were trying to call Caesar, Kurios, Lord. And they say, no, Caesar is not Kurios. Jesus, Kurios, Jesus is Lord. And yes, it would go back to the divine name, but it was the tradition of the Jews that set forth that correspondence. So we have here that center. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the center of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the center of our lives. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our Lord. It's possessive. He's not just a Lord. 
He's not just the Lord. He's our Lord. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. The question is, is He your Lord? Is He the Lord of your life? There's no good news if He hasn't become your Lord. There's nothing good worth celebrating if He's not your Lord. There's no salvation in a sense just simply by believing the facts about Jesus Christ. Enjoying the church services. Enjoying the Christian religion. Enjoying the theology. Knowing the law. All that meaningless if He's not your Lord. You could be reformed and yet not know Him as Lord. You could be rigid knowing all the theological dots of the I's and the T's to be crossed, but you could be lost and not know Him as your Lord. And one way to tell that is that much of life's really all about you. One way to tell that is that your home revolves around you. One way to tell that is the workplace revolves around you. Another way to tell that is the church revolves around you. Your likes, your preferences, your wants. You come not to be taught, you come to teach everybody else. It revolves around you. It doesn't revolve around Jesus Christ. Is He your Lord? Is He the one that you're called to serve? Is He the one that included you? Is He the one that's worth laying aside your preferences and beginning to live for Christ? Is He your Lord? Because there's no good news if Jesus Christ isn't possessively our Lord. Personally. And effectively. We can't just say it. Jesus Christ is Lord. We actually have to mean it. And functionally speaking, you have to examine your life. And my life is what we're revolving around ourselves or our Lord. And of course, we know that the right answer is that we ought to take Him as our Lord. We ought to run to Him, flee to Him, examine ourselves, be concerned. We should be those at the table saying, is it me, Lord? Could it be, I am the hypocrite? A Christian will examine themselves and say, Lord, please, please, whatever you need to do in my life, please make me genuine. May be my Lord, your Lord. It says, through whom we received grace and apostleship, he understood that ministry, the ministry of his life, the call of his life, was a gift. It was something he received. And it had a purpose. That in the Spirit of God, he had a, a direct purpose. It was the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Much of the background of the first chapter falls within the book of Habakkuk. And at the end of Habakkuk, um, 
you might remember the famous uh, quote there about when there's an idea of not forcing the barns and there's, there's not something that's a reality yet. You read those and it's this great example of faith. I'll read it. It says, though the fig tree should not blossom. Think about Israel there, the fig tree analogy. Nor the fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So there's the idea. The reality is not there. What else happens in Habakkuk? It says in that place there, in verse 14 of chapter 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's not a reality yet. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord is not there yet. People don't all know the glory of the Lord. It's not covering the earth as the water covers the sea yet. When we get down to the, the uh, theme of the whole letter of salvation, we read about it in verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also the Greek. But the just... The just shall live by faith. That comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. Contrast, but the righteous shall live by faith. What's the background of it? It's not a reality yet. The, glory, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is not covering the world yet. The, the stalls seem empty. But those who believe the gospel believe they will be full. The waters will cover the earth of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And so what, how are you supposed to live? Faith in the Gospel. Faith in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who has done everything needful and necessary to redeem man. It says here, to bring about the obedience of faith, this idea of obedience of faith is that faith is a principle and obedience is a product. It's Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's put against the works of the law and it's called a law of faith. Still a law. And the obedience of the faith is saying it's the, it's the faith that produces evangelical obedience. Not pharisaical obedience. Not an obedience that goes to your own rules, your own laws, your own religion, your own ways. But an obedience that pleases God. The obedience of the faith as a principle, faith produces true, acceptable, spiritual worship that is pleasing to God. Only the gospel can produce that type of obedience. You can do a lot of good things in life. You can be doing a lot of good things in seasons where much of the world is inclined to do good things. But the only acceptable things, the only truly good things, the only things that actually please our God are produced by faith 
as a principle, the faith that saves, the faith that produces true obedience. And remember, the accusation in the background is that Paul was antinomian. He didn't care about obedience. So he words these things very carefully. For the sake of his name is actually um, such an important term. We want to uh, slow down and just remember here. We oftentimes will say it's all for the glory of the Lord. But what does that mean? It means, it means here, so as to know Him. So, so as like Habakkuk says, so the knowledge of Him, the fragrance of Him, the knowledge of how glorious He is spreads throughout the entire earth. And where do we get that from? Well, we get it from Habakkuk as I've read, 2.14. But in the high priestly prayer, in the book of John, Chapter 17, we read it in a couple places. Here's how he uses it. John 17 and verse 6, it says, I've manifested your name to your people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They've kept your word. And then drop down. Chapter 17, verse 26. He says, I've made known to them your name. It's an issue of knowledge. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I and them. It shows up in the very chapter of Paul's conversion. In chapter 9, the same idea. We're looking at chapter 9, verse 15. And it says there, But the Lord said to him, "For God, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What is he doing? He's saying the idea of the sake of his name is a sake that people would know how glorious He is. That's what Paul's saying. It's for His sake throughout all the nations and all the world. Paul actually believes this Gospel is going to go there. And that's what's the, the glorious thing about it. If this Gospel was some human invention, if this Gospel was something merely that we could do, if this Gospel was something that merely we could obey in our own strength, you would, you would not you would not have the ability, you would not have the certainty, you would not have the confidence that this Gospel will indeed conquer all the world. And when we say conquer all the world, we're not saying that everybody becomes a Christian. It's a false accusation. We're saying that He has a people that He's chosen before time and He will fill this world with His knowledge as promised. We're saying that all the elect will believe. All the elect will be saved. All the elect chosen before the beginning of time will be saved and this world will be filled and heaven will be filled with people that know the Lord. And it will, it will predominate. Christ will be supreme everywhere and in everything. The goal, God would be on earth dwelling with man under God's rule together with God's people enjoying God's presence. That's what theologians call biblical theology. It's that pattern in which that goal that begins in the garden of the temple of the garden now spreads throughout the world and the purposes of God are now fulfilled where the earth becomes a temple and the people of God are there on the earth with the presence of God under the rule of God enjoying who He is. That's the trajectory of history. We have confidence in that because the gospel is not something that you have the ability to wake up and choose. 
Jay Gresham Machen says in his, his books, uh, his addresses concerning things unseen, he says that if the gospel was something that we simply could go and find, it wouldn't really be much a gospel at all. It would be something that like we're doing. The glory of the gospel is that we could not find, we could not discover. If it's something simply we could just discover in our own human volition, our own human wills, what glory is that? The glory is on you. We should spread the knowledge of the glory of you everywhere because you've made a great discovery. You're like a scientist in the world and you have now discovered the great formula that solves all the problems and we should be worshiping you. That's not the gospel. The gospel says there's no man that could discover this. The gospel says God came to a people in darkness and He found them. He chose them. He redeems them. The matter is certain, but it's not yet. It's a reality in the sense that there will be no person than whom He has laid His life down for and died for on the cross who will be lost. And this world will be filled with the glory of the Lord, but not yet. So how are you supposed to live? We'll learn by faith. How are you supposed to operate in this world? By faith. By faith in the center and the heartbeat of the gospel, Jesus Christ our Lord. The obedience of the faith for the sake of His name, meaning the sake of, when you hear that, the sake of the knowledge of His glory everywhere. That's what He's talking about. And it's to be among all the nations, including you. And here, here's the punch that Paul's getting at in this. He's saying, the most impregnable place in the entire universe at this time, and perhaps in all history, was Rome. Rome was known. You couldn't get anything out of Rome. They were guarded. They were the empire of the world. And Paul's saying, this gospel's reached you. You're included in this gospel. Not in a way that you merit salvation, but you've been included in this gospel by grace. You are called to be long to Jesus Christ. You can't get around the very doctrine of election, the calling of God. God calls sinners out of darkness into light. He calls them out of death and into life. That's the only way anybody could say, if we were standing there in heaven, how did you get there? He called me. How did you make it here? I mean, I know what kind of person you were. He called me. How did you come to discover that? How did, how did you come to that? Did you, did you work through certain things? Was it books or, or some ideas or someone that really was responsible for all of that? Well, no, it, it really, really, he called me. Yeah, he used a lot of things, but he called me. He called me like a dead man out of a tomb. He called me out of darkness into light. He called me. And he's indicating here, that's the only thing that can be responsible for how sinners can be included in this gospel. This gospel is not some human invention. This gospel can impregnate Rome. This gospel can go past its walls. This gospel can go into its prisons. This gospel can go into its royal palaces. This gospel knows no bounds. This gospel is not intimidated by communist governments, democracies, totalitarian regimes. This gospel will not be satisfied standing outside the gates. 
This gospel will break down the gates. This gospel will go into the uttermost part of the world. This gospel will go even into Rome. 26 people (coughs) he knew intimately there. Seven or eight of them women. Phoebe likely brought the letter. Junia, another woman, was a leader in the church. We wouldn't give her an office, but she was a leader. He has intimate understanding and relations with all of these people. He's never been there. The gospel didn't go there because of Paul. The gospel went there because of God. The gospel didn't go there because of courageous, manly men. It went there by means of weakness. Practically speaking, how much better would it be by way of strategy to have leading women bringing the gospel into a place where they're suspecting all the men to bring it in? That's what God did to Rome. Phoebe brings the letter here. Junia, you have a Priscilla and Aquila. I can never figure out the man or the woman there, but they're in there. The point is, <coughs> we got some things messed up. We got some things wrong in our American culture and understanding, even in our reformed world about the gospel. We're afraid to simply explain what the text says. Because in truth, the only gospel that many of us have is really about ourselves. And if we really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the about face happens today. And we actually become servants of the gospel. And we realize that this church is made up of men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ, called to particular positions and things to do for the glory of the Lord. We don't violate anything in all of Scripture. We desire to honor all of Scripture and honor the Lord. We are servants of the Lord. We're not here to please Pharisees. We're not here to please Sadducees that don't believe, believe they have to have more evidence like the agnostics. We're here to please God. We're here to bring the knowledge of Him everywhere to the home, the workplace, the community, the county, our nation. And we're not intimidated by the fact that some places seem like they can't be reached. There is no place that God can't reach the sinner. There's no dungeon. There's no hole. There's no place in all the world that God can't do it. There's no brazen heart. There's no hardness of heart that He can't break. When Paul says, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ and to all those in Rome, he's making that punch. He's saying he's going to reach Rome even more valiantly than he has. Who are loved by God. Who are called to be saints. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, made saints into some other thing that's here. It just simply means holy ones. You've been made holy in the Lord. And he concludes with a benediction, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the center is the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is responsible for any peace that you have subjectively or objectively. God gives grace and God gives peace definitively at the moment of conversion. He wishes good for them. He understands that it comes only from God. Any blessing that Paul could give is a blessing that comes from above. 
I was always confused. I had people sometimes call me up and say, we need you to come at this community event, give the benediction. And then I would look on the program and I would be one of the first ones up. And I said, benediction's at the end, right? It's taken me years to figure this out. <clears throat> the benediction can happen anywhere. It happens here at the beginning of the letter. It's blessing upon God's people. They're loved by God and therefore we're to love them. And to love them, we have to get the gospel right. To love them, the gospel being right set forth as a gospel that has no explanation other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, including us by grace and giving us peace. There is no other gospel. Anything else is a foreign entity. It comes in and it invades. But this gospel went into the place where it seemed you couldn't invade. This gospel went even to Rome without Paul. And it seems to be a formidable church. If he can name 26 people, imagine all the people that are in Rome that are believers. God chose to bring the gospel to Rome. I believe to show us the gospel can and will go everywhere. It's not yet. So how do you live? You live by faith in this gospel. You don't want to spend your time talking about yourself all the time. You don't want to spend your time thinking about yourself all the time. If you do, you have very little time to enjoy the gospel. In fact, it's really easy to come into a service like this and every thought you've had, perhaps, has been really how this affects you, about how, how you understand this, about how you're going to set this forth. But to love you, we have to say, we're coming here together to hear from God. We're coming here to hear from the book of Romans, this letter, all about largely the Lord. The Paul's gospel, yes, it includes Paul. But it talks way more of God. It speaks forth what all Christians are to be about. And that's why we need to be careful today about those pressures and things that make us more focused on ourselves, more focused on how everything impacts us than we are focused on the gospel. And of course, in many places, what we find is there's so much talk about Focus on just the gospel as a way to get us away from actually true obedience to our Lord. It's just all about the gospel, some say. That's only true if the gospel is what we have looked at here today. And the problem in many of those places of people saying it's all about the gospel is they don't have Paul's gospel. The Trinity is not even on the page for them. Their gospel is still about themselves. This gospel is about seeing the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fall upon all nations. This gospel is about having the certainty that it will and living faith now in the present of how we are to live our lives full of the grace and peace. And you're going to need it. 
You're going to need the grace of God. And God put his church here. Are you a servant of the Lord Jesus? Then be part of his church. If you're a servant of the Lord Jesus, stop thinking about yourself. Stop being agnostic. Stop putting up, I need this proof, I need this proof, I need this proof. Serve the Lord. Repent of your selfishness. It's not about you. Well, I've been hurt. I too. Serve the Lord. I'm discouraged. I'm shaken by all these things. So what? Serve the Lord. I need more proof. You got enough proof. Jesus rose from the grave. You don't think He's sovereign here now to take care of you? Serve the Lord. Stop playing around with God's church. And don't play around with God's gospel. Serve the Lord. Because if you're going to go on calling yourself a Christian, you have to be servants of the Lord and not yourselves. That's what makes us Christians. So we call each other to repentance. Let us examine our hearts and lives today and make sure we're serving the Lord. But second, make sure we're serving the Lord in the strength He provides. Not our strategy, not our ingenuity, not things that we could ever even explain as to how we serve the Lord, but none other than the gospel of Jesus Christ that the only reason I'm able to serve the Lord isn't because of what I know, what degrees I have, what job I work with. We are all humble servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have nothing to boast in if we have this gospel. We have nothing more glorious, more wonderful, nothing that, that radiates a more beautiful picture, nothing worth talking about more and more and more than this gospel of Jesus Christ. Our focus is there. Nobody has a one-up in the room. Nobody has a special status in that way. The gospel takes the status. You're not a gift to the church. None of us are. The gift is Christ. The gift is the glory of the gospel. We're receivers of it. And we cannot ever enjoy it if we do not become servants in the strength the Lord provides. We'll always be those who are trying to show our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power. And everybody trying to live that way knows very well how weary it is. It's the very reason our Lord says, come to me. So I don't want to be confusing. I'm not begging anybody to do anything. I'm calling by the command of Scripture to repent and go to Christ. You'll be a worthless member of a church if you don't go to Christ. A worthless husband or wife if you don't go to Christ. You won't be able to be a good brother or sister to anybody if you don't first go to Christ. And you certainly cannot be someone who loves the nations if you have not first gone to Christ. Christ is everything. You don't have the power to do what anything I've called and commanded you to do from Scripture. You must go to Christ. You must flee to Him. You must be cast out from the world, segregated from it, and set apart for the Gospel. You have to go to Jesus to get these things. 
You can't go to the next church service. You can't go to the next church or your preferences. You can't go some other person anywhere in the world. You've got to go to Jesus Christ to have the power and ability to do what He commands. You must have faith as the principle. And it must not be a legal principle in your life. So please, I pray. Well, I want to say please. I think here's the thing. A lot of times I made the mistake. Oh, thank you for coming to church. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being a part. You know what? We don't need to thank anybody. It's our call. It's what we ought to do. The only person we ought to be thanking is God. We thank the Lord. That's what Thanksgiving is about. We're not called to thank anybody. Thank you so much for your presence. Thank you for so much you contribute. Thank you for this. No, it's none of you. It's none of me. The one who's to be thanked is God. Trying to give man the place of God is a problem. We ought to be here. We ought to worship. We ought to glorify. We ought to be focused in serving the Lord. We're not here to thank each other every day. We're here to thank the Lord. So may we do it. May we be different. May this letter change us so that we are pursuing God, thanking God, blessing God. And if we do, we'll be sure to be blessed ourselves. Let's stand together for prayer.